You're listening to the Packernet Podcast Network. And gentlemen, welcome once again to the Packernet Podcast. I am your host and resident panelist, as always, Ryan Schlipp. Check us out online, packernet.com. Find me on Twitter, pack underscore data. So there seems to be a bit of confusion. And there, there's definitely been a theme this past week and a half, two weeks. And that more or less is don't listen to what the sports television box tells you. That's right, the sports television box. I don't know, somebody once told me not to say media because it has political connotations, and that just jumped in my head all of a sudden. It was like, all right, what's a different way I can say it? I think I'm going to go back to media, because sports box doesn't really cut it. So, Anyways, look, if me telling you Skip Bayless is stupid, don't listen to him, makes you think of your night terrors that are your political commentary, I can't help you. You're traumatized. I, you know... Talk to a therapist. I'm sorry. There's no undertones here. It's just it's just what it is. We don't have to make everything into some crazy, vast political conspiracy. I promise you we don't have to do that. Anyways, dog whistle. It's a dog whistle. <laughs> but anyways, as expected, the media narrative has already begun about this ferocious Tampa Bay defense. I'm not trying to pick on the guy. Seems like a pretty good dude and whatnot. But I saw... Um, John Ledyard is now talking about Carlton Davis and how dangerous of a corner he is. So we got to watch out. Elite corner alert, everybody. Carlton Davis is the man. But anyways, what I thought would be important is to kind of run through, not just for your sake, but also for my sake, because we all forget the circumstances surrounding the last time the Packers and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers met. I just want to read to you, as though the game just happened, the circumstances, and then you can decide if you think this is what's going to happen again. How's that sound? By the way, Carlton Davis against uh, New Orleans, as much as other people's film study may have said otherwise, PFF was not impressed, gave him a 56 overall grade, 25 tackling grade, which we talked about this last time. The uh, Rams corners are going to have to do some kind of work tackling at some point. If this is the best tackling that Carlton Davis can do at six foot one, two hundred and six pounds, which is kind of big, he might be in a bit of trouble. Um, last week, five targets, only two receptions, but he gave up seventy-two yards on those two receptions as well as a touchdown. He did have a pass breakup, but one hundred and twenty-seven point one passer rating when targeted. We're gonna get. To, I'm, I'm. I'm all over the place. <laughs> Carlton Davis. Here's what we're doing today. Anyways, Carlton Davis. But anyways, what we're doing today. I tried to move on, and then I got angry, and I came back to it. But uh, also, for the season, as I mentioned, if we're looking at cornerbacks, Jair Alexander, number one cornerback in the NFL, Darius Williams for the L.A. Rams was graded as the sixth best corner in the NFL, Jalen Ramsey, the seventh best corner in the NFL, Troy Hill, the 18th best corner in the NFL, Tampa Bay's best corner. And again, I mean, if you're studying film and you come to a different conclusion, fine, but it's not Carlton Davis, according to John Ledyard. That would be Jamel Dean, who is the 11th best corner, which is good. Nothing wrong with that. Their second best corner would be Ross Cockrell, who is 23rd. Mr. Jamel Dean, is, or excuse me, Carlton Davis is 41st. Now, again, this might have to do with the fact that, you know, they're the, his grade is lower because he goes up against better competition. But the problem is what we're then looking at is a sort of ratio. 
how good do you do compared to the competition you're up against? The reason that these guys do better is because, similar to what I said about Jalen, it's not that Darius Williams is better than Jalen, it's just that Darius Williams is better against essentially number twos and three slot corners than Jalen is marginally against number one wide receivers, which really would go to show that Jalen is better, right? I mean, if Jalen's basically comparable to Darius Williams going up against number ones as opposed to a team's overall slot guy or number two, right? But this is a pretty big difference here. Who's better, Jamel Dean going up against a number two that is the 11th best, or Carlton Davis kind of just getting worked by number ones all year long? Point is, this ain't Jalen Ramsey, dude. Carlton Davis has given up 783 yards this year. Jair has given up 337. Jalen Ramsey gave up 309. Okay? This is this is not great. Maybe he meant to say Jamel Dean. I don't know. But if Carlton Davis genuinely is the number one guy, and by the way, he played 14 games during the regular season, gave up 783 yards. That's roughly 900 yards over a 16-game season. He also gave up five touchdowns compared to Jair's two compared to Jalen Ramsey's three. I mean, he's, he's, and this is the thing. He's got a ton of pass breakup. This is the same thing that happened with, uh, I think it's Diggs over in Dallas. You look at all his stats and it's like, this guy's not good. Why is everybody obsessed with him? And then you look at the pass breakups and they're through the roof. He has four interceptions and 14 pass breakups. That's about as good as anybody. Ronald Darby's the only one I can see with more pass breakups and he has zero picks. So yeah, I could see why when you look at those stats, again, the flashy stats, everyone's like, ooh, dude, Carlton Davis. It took me a while to figure out why that's why. He's not good, but he just he's he's kind of a ball hog. Cool. Bottom line is, play to play, dude's going to get worked by Devontae. That's it. Well, why didn't that happen last time? Well, first of all, we're going to cover that. Second of all, five targets, three receptions, 33 yards, just against Carlton Davis. That's kind of similar to what he did against Jalen anyways, and it was a terrible game. Terrible for Devontae, terrible for Rodgers, terrible for everybody. He still managed three receptions, 33 yards, and got two first downs. On a rock bottom horrible day, that's what he did. So I'm I'm not I'm just not that worried about it. But all right, let's 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 do a look back on that particular week. First of all, the offensive line. The offensive line graded out quite well. The majority of the problems and the pressures came by way of Aaron Rodgers. David Bakhtiari allowed zero sacks, zero hits, zero hurries, and graded out perfectly well. Corey Lindsley graded out extremely well at center. Zero sacks, zero hurries, uh, zero hits. Rick Wagner, who came in partially at left tackle, allowed one sack, no hits, no hurry. So one pressure on the day. Lucas Patrick at right guard, zero sack, zero hits, one hurry. Billy Turner was the one weak spot at right tackle. So Billy Turner and Aaron Rodgers were kind of the, well, Elton Jenkins wasn't that great either. Elite run blocker in this game, but just got kind of worked. So there's your biggest flaws. Billy Turner at right tackle was bad. He gave up a sack, he gave up a hit, he gave up four hurries for six total pressures in this game. Remember, we already talked about this. Jason Pierre-Paul, who's done basically nothing all year, 8% pressure rate, absolutely annihilated Billy Turner. We also talked about the fact that Billy Turner's second worst day, remember, he gave up six pressures. His next worst day was three pressures. Two days giving up three pressures, four games where he gave up two, a bunch of games with one, two games he gave up zero pressures. Those were in weeks 14 and 16, by the way. More recent history. He did give up three pressures against Chicago, but outside of that, it's been 1-0-1-0-1, going all the way back to week 13. He has not been giving up a ton of pressures. So again, a pretty big anomaly. And and, and the problem is, and, and this is the, and I've already addressed it, but let's let's make very sure that you're hearing me say this. The counter to what I'm saying is, yeah, but it's because it's the, the, the buck, and they, you know, they're just that good or something. No, they're not. I just said 
Jason Pierre-Paul has been trash all year. I just said Billy Turner has never been that bad all year. You think for one second, and by the way, Billy Turner is not our right tackle anymore, which kind of makes me a little bit nervous because he's probably going to play left tackle against a guy that's actually kind of good. But Rick Wagner is our right tackle. His worst day was four pressures, and he's given up one sack all year. One. And on the day that he gave up a sack, that was his only pressure of the day. That was Tampa Bay. I just said he gave up one sack. That was the only game in which he gave up a sack all year long. And he didn't give up a single pressure outside of that one sack. You think Jason Pierre-Paul, who has been a bad pass rusher all year, is going to work Rick Wagner? I mean, the only way that happens is if the Packers implode again, and that's clearly what this was. It was an implosion. He gave up a sack, he gave up two hits, and he gave up a hurry. That's four pressure. That's not good, especially on the interior. That was, wait for it, the most pressures he gave up all year. Four pressures. The second worst game he's had is two. He's given up two pressures three times, and in none of those games did he give up a single sack or hit. In all three instances, there were two hurries. He gave up two hurries against L.A. this past week. He gave up two hurries against Indy. He gave up two hurries against New Orleans. In fact, wait for it, that's the only sack he's given up all year was to Tampa. Rick Wagner's only sack was to Tampa. Elton Jenkins' only sack was to Tampa. The most pressures Elton Jenkins gave up all year was to Tampa. The most pressures Billy Turner gave up by a mile was to Tampa. Corey Lindsley and David Bakhtiari, and Rick Wagner for the most part, and Lucas Patrick were, were fine. But we had a handful of guys that just didn't show up at all. Billy Turner, Elton Jenkins, again, a great as a run blocker, was just useless as a pass blocker. And then you had Aaron Rodgers, who was here in footsteps like crazy. Four of the pressures, including a sack, one hit, and two hurries were attributed to him just holding onto the ball too long. Anybody want to guess if this was his worst, <laughs> the most pressures he put on himself all year? Because you'd be right if you did guess that. Three pressures came against Philly. That was his second most. So it was Aaron Rodgers' worst day in terms of allowing pressures on himself, Elton Jenkins' worst day, Rick Wagner's only sack, Billy Turner's worst day. This is just pressure on the offensive line. That's all we're talking about so far is offensive line play. And I'm not saying Tampa Bay isn't due any credit, but we're, 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 we're trying to talk about reality here. Reality is the Tampa Bay Buccaneers have a great front. They do not have the most dominant pass rushing unit in the NFL. They certainly don't have the best pass rushing unit in NFL history. The Packers allowed 21 pressures in that game. Looking, if we go backwards, week four, they allowed eight total pressures. Week three, nine pressures. Week two, five pressures. Week one, four pressures. Billy Turner by himself gave up more pressures than the entire team did in almost every one of these weeks prior. The week after, the entire team gave up five pressures. Again, Billy Turner gave up seven in one game. Sorry, six? Was it six? Yeah, six. Whatever. Still applies. Against Minnesota, real rough game. Ten pressures. Oof. Against San Francisco, six pressures. Uh, Week ten against Jacksonville, three pressures. Three! One sack, one hit, one hurry. That's it. Billy Turner gave up two of the three pressures. That's it. Week eleven, ten. Another real rough day. Week twelve, they give up eight. Uh, week 13, let's see, they gave up 12. Worst day so far against Philadelphia, and we're about halfway as bad as what happened to Tampa. Let's see, week 14, five total pressures against Detroit. Oh, these Packers, they just don't know how to play football. Against Carolina, six pressures. 
Week 16, four pressures against the Tennessee Titans. And then week 17, eight pressures. Eight. Almost every single one of these weeks with the exception of, what, three? Not including Tampa, three had double digits. The second worst day for the offensive line, despite all the injuries, despite losing Bakhtiari, despite all the different things that have happened this entire season, the worst game they had was 12 pressures against the Eagles. Are we saying that Tampa Bay is so good and so elite that they're going to get 21 pressures again against a team that on a bad day gives up 10? Is that what we're saying? If you look at uh, Tampa Bay, the amount of pressures, and again, remember, they don't count half sacks and stuff, so the, the pressures are going to be a little bit different, but 27 total pressures were attributed to these players, right? Because you figure if two guys come in on a pressure at once, they both get credit for it. It's not two pressures, though. It's still just one pressure, but two guys get credit. So anyways, 27 pressures. 27 individuals got too close to Aaron Rodgers, whether it was a sack, hit, or hurry. The very next week against Las Vegas, they got 17. I'm trying to find one game here. Week 11, 15, let's see here. I'm trying to find one that had 27 or more. That was their bye week, so that messed everything up. Week 14 here. Doing this live, so I'm giving myself the option or the possibility of being completely embarrassed if it turns out that they had like 27 every single week. I haven't seen one yet. I saw a 26 mixed in against somebody. I think that might have been two weeks after. There you go, 28 against Minnesota, one of the worst offensive lines in football. So there you go. So having gone through, oh, let's do the playoffs real quick. They had 11 this past week against New Orleans. Okay. Having gone through every single one of their games, the second best game they had in terms of pressures was against the Green Bay Packers, which happens to be one of the best offensive lines in football. Does that compute for you? Does that make sense to you? Because that doesn't really compute for me. I don't think PFF has a team pressure stat or anything like that but let's head over here i found a different site that looks at hurry percentages quarterback knockdown per attempt percentages and pressure percentages let's start with pressure percentages tampa bay buccaneers they have our third 27 percent of the time on average they generate a pressure so they're they're good at it but they're the third best and to to put this into maybe a little bit clearer context remember the second worst game we had 12 pressures that was the second best team in terms of generating pressure, the Philadelphia Eagles. I guess what I'm driving at here is that I don't think the Packers did a phenomenal job against the Eagles and they should have gotten 30 pressures and we held them to 12. I think generally this is one of the best offensive lines in football. 12 pressures for the Eagles makes sense because it's the second best team in terms of generating pressure next to the Pittsburgh Steelers. And that what would have made more sense is for Tampa Bay to get somewhere between 10 and 12 pressures because they're very, very good at it. And because that's a high number for the Packers to give up. And I think it would make sense that on an average day, if the Packers' offensive line comes out and is average, there would be roughly 10 pressures in this game, which is not good. But 27 is stupid. And if they get anywhere near 27, it was because the Packers' offensive line imploded and Aaron Rodgers was hearing footsteps again. It's complete and total nonsense. Tampa Bay Buccaneers are 8th in terms of quarterback hurry percentage. They're 5th in quarterback knockdown percentage. So again, they're good at it. No question about it, they're good at it. But they're not two times as good as the Eagles good. That was a complete and utter implosion. And again, we just looked at offensive lines so far. We haven't touched on anything else. 
So let us move on then to our quarterback, Mr. Aaron Rodgers. 16 completions on 35 attempts for 160 yards, zero touchdowns, two interceptions. Now, again, I'm not going to say Tampa doesn't have a good defense, because they do. But it's the proportion that you would have to believe in order to think that this is going to happen again. In other words, if you understand Aaron Rodgers and how stupid of a stat this is, and I'm probably going to take too much time doing this, but I want to see if I can look something up here. So it didn't take very long. Aaron Rodgers, games in which he's thrown 160 yards or less and two interceptions or more um, in his entire career, there's one. It was, let's see, October 18th, 2020 against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Oh, that's weird. Only time in his entire history. I didn't even put zero touchdowns. He could have had a 160-yard game, two interceptions, and five touchdowns, and it would have shown up on here. Nope, that's never happened in the history of Aaron Rodgers' career, ever. In fact, in his entire career, um, there have only been 19 times in which he's thrown two interceptions. That's it. Two of those times, he or three of those times, he had no touchdowns. So zero touchdowns, two interceptions has happened three times. The closest would have been in 2014 against the Buffalo Bills, and I, I, I automatically specifically remember that. That was, I 100% remember that. They lost to the Buffalo Bills, and that was one of those that are a dominant team. Nobody's going to beat them, and that was a tough defense, and everything just went sideways. That was 185 yards, zero touchdowns, two interceptions. The only other game was against Chicago in 2011. It's funny that... These are all happening in very good years. 2020, 2014, and 2011 were all extremely good years for the Packers. But they did beat Chicago 21-14. to Aaron Rodgers threw for 244 yards, zero touchdowns, two interceptions. So it literally happens like once every five years. If we look at his grade in this game, it was a 44.7. Yes, that was the worst grade he had all year. In fact, it was worse by a lot. His grade against Indy was a 63.6. That was his next worst game. 63 compared to a 44. Last time he played a game that was anywhere near that bad, it happened to be against San Francisco last year. You say, well, there's a direct parallel there. Well, there is, except the next game against San Francisco, he didn't do that poorly. He had a grade of 62.7. Now, hopefully he plays better than that. We need Aaron Rodgers to be better than average, but the fact of the matter is 62.7 at that point in time was pretty average for what Aaron Rodgers is doing down the stretch. He had an elite grade against Seattle. Before that was a 71 against Detroit, a 68 against Minnesota, 69 against Chicago, 51 against Washington. He wasn't exactly burning down the house. Last year was not this year. His overall grade was an 83. This year it's a 94.6. So statistically, that was a once-every-five-year stat. Grade-wise, it's maybe a a once-a-year implosion. Again, the, the things that we're depending on are silly. They're things that almost, it was the perfect storm of, oh, crap. And again, it was after a bye week during the season. I don't know what it is about coming off a bye during the season, but the Packers just come out a little bit flat-footed. I'd also like to point out that, um, before I forget, this was a 3 o'clock game, Central Time, in Tampa Bay, and it was 86 degrees on that day. 86 degrees. The weather was working in their favor. I wonder if it's going to be working in their favor again this coming week when it's not home but away, and it's not hot, but it's frigid. The weather forecast for Sunday is about 26 degrees as a high. Possible snow. And they're lucky because there's a bit of a warm come, warm front coming through on Sunday, and they better hope that it comes through because Saturday's supposed to be 18. If that gets bumped back, it could be sub-20. I don't know that that necessarily works in Tampa Bay's favor. It's still high 60s in Tampa. 
I mean, right now it's 45, but, you know, it's also very early in the morning. The weather forecast for today is a high of 69, Wednesday 72, Thursday 74, Friday 75, Saturday 76, Sunday 24. Because <laughs> they're not in Tampa anymore. Anyways, we're about halfway through when I need to quit, so we'll take a break right here. We'll come back, and we'll just keep doing exactly what we're doing. Just want to encourage everybody to uh, keep, you know, jumping on all the, the many things that I've got going on. Everything's kind of blowing up right now, and I'm happy to see it. Pa- uh, Pack underscore daddy is the Twitter. There is an NFL uh, or a Packers newsletter. Make sure you jump on that. Packernet podcast is the Instagram. We've even got Packernet pod on Twitter, or excuse me, on uh, TikTok. That's a thing now. We're still trying to navigate how to make that work, but it's a thing. It's there. If you're on there, just go ahead. Otherwise, there's the Flick Chat community, which is also growing, which I love to see. We have one of the largest Flick Chat um, team chats of anybody on there. It's a new thing that uh, one of the multi-trillion dollar uh, sports betting companies, FanDuel, started. It's basically just a chat that they are pumping a ton of money into because they want it to be a big thing. It's a game day chat. They got stats up. You can do polls. They're giving away tons of money. Uh, they want this to be the, the this big thing. And I figure, why not position myself to be the Packers chat if this thing ends up blowing up? So far, we've accomplished that. We are the largest Green Bay Packers chat on Flick Chat, and I'd love for you to be a part of that. I don't know if it's going to be big, but again, one of the biggest companies in the world is trying to pump as much money into it as possible to make sure that it is very big. So it's a lot of fun. You just hang out, you chat with Packer fans. Um, we got Goose running it. He's doing a good job of keeping it clean, keeping up the uh, discussions and whatnot. Also, Pack Daddy NFL on YouTube currently have a live stream going i'm trying something new it's kind of cool where you guys get to pick who goes where in the draft based on a poll so i've got polls up on the youtube channel and i figured why not live stream it so that people kind of have an idea what's going on stop in they can see it whatever so you can check the progress of it on the youtube channel otherwise you can go vote on uh, whenever the teams come up and i don't know i i think it's fun i'm i'm having fun but i've got a basically a 24-hour live stream going and uh, I think that's kind of awesome in and of itself. I don't know. I'm excited about it. Anyways, that's all my stuff. And if you're wondering how in the world I'm able to do all this stuff, it's because I have assembled a team of people that are working really, really hard to help me out and um, eternally grateful for their help because obviously otherwise none of this stuff would be growing like the Instagram that I never even go on <laughs> would pretty much be at like 24 followers if it was just me running. So shout out to them, folks. Anyways, let's take a break, and uh, we'll be right back. I'm um, continuing on with Aaron Rodgers a little bit here. Um, part of the assumption is that um, let me make sure. Yep, we're good. Part of the assumption, and this is an assumption I would have, is that look, he didn't play well. Un- he hasn't played well under pressure all year, and so if he's under pressure more, it's just kind of necessary that he's not going to play very well because you know it's just you know proportions or whatever whatever percentage is under pressure, et cetera, et cetera. That's actually not the case, though. Under pressure, and he was under pressure a lot, 18 different dropbacks he was under pressure. 13 times he actually tried to throw the ball. Only four of those were completed for 48 yards. 3.7 yards per attempt. He was sacked four times, threw the ball away four times. 44.4 adjusted completion percentage. That's terrible. Here are his stats. When no pressure was present, zero pressure, clean pocket, 12 completions on 22 attempts for 112 yards, zero touchdowns, two interceptions. Both interceptions came with no pressure. He had a 54.8 grade with no pressure. 
Aaron Rodgers played horribly even when there was no pressure. He was 0 for 5 on passes more than 20 yards. He was 3 of 6 for 44 yards, no touchdowns and a pick on passes between 10 and 20 yards. So we're up to three passes, three completions for 44 yards on passes beyond 10 yards. That's it. That's the whole day. Otherwise, 10 of 15 for roughly 100 yards and a pick on passes between 0 and 10 yards. But but listen to the important part. 3 of 11 for 44 yards and a pick on any pass beyond 10 yards. Again, maybe the maybe Tampa's just a bunch of wizards, man. Maybe they do this every week. I mean, they're they're for the season the eighth best defense in football, which is kind of close to where the Bears are. They have the number 1 rushing defense, the number 8 passing defense in terms of net yards per attempt and yards per attempt rushing. So it's it's a little confusing, especially considering the Packers just played the third best rushing defense and the number one passing defense in the NFL and kind of made short work of them. But hey, maybe Tampa is just that much better than, than the Rams, and we just, you know, who knows? Because there's only two options, right? Either this was a massive anomaly, or Tampa Bay really is that good and the Packers really are that bad. There's really no two ways about it. Either we look at it and we acknowledge it and say, man, that might happen again, because that's just the way that it is. Or we look at it and say, that's not the way that it is. And again, of course, the Packers could just implode, just just play like garbage. It's also true that Tampa could just implode and play like garbage. Tampa just beat the Saints, right? Do you know the Saints in Week 9 embarrassed Tampa 3-38? to where, where was that narrative, by the way, that Tampa can't beat the Saints? The Saints beat them twice in the season. Twice. Once by 11 points. Once by 35 points. We're talking a 46-point point margin point differential in two games in favor of the Saints going into that game. And I don't remember hearing anybody say that the Tampa Bay doesn't have a chance. This was a bigger blowout than what Tampa did to the Saints, than what Tampa did to the Packers, I mean. Tampa came back and won because nobody cares about the fact that the Saints beat them in their own how or no, it wasn't in New Orleans, whatever, in New Orleans 3-38. to And this is, again, going back to New Orleans. When they went to Tampa, they beat them by 11 only. Why did nobody care about that? Why did everybody still think Tampa has a really good chance of winning the game? Because nobody cares. But for some reason, when it's the Packers, and we, we, we can't shake this fraud thing, the, the media can't, the fans can't, nobody can shake it. Like, oh man, they're kind of frauds. They're about to suck. Well, is Tampa about to suck? Oh no, not Tampa. Tampa, they're, they're a good football team, by golly, by gee. They don't play bad. They play good. They never implode except when they do, but that, that doesn't. I mean, that, that happens to everybody. That doesn't make them frauds. Only the Packers are frauds. If anybody else gets blown out, it's just a, it's, it's football. It's, you know, any given Sunday, we move on, but it's a new day. It's a new dawn. The Packers, though, you got to watch out. Ticking time bomb. Well, how many games did the Packers get blown out? Well, one. <laughs> okay. So what, so what are we talking about here? The next biggest beating that the Packers had was what? 22-28 to 28 against the Vikings? Because the only other loss was an overtime loss by three points. They've lost three games all year. You know, Tampa lost more than that, right? And, and again, everybody can't shake the San Francisco thing, but I'm, I'm telling you, Tampa Bay is not San Francisco. San Francisco was 13-3. and three. You know how many times they got blown out in 2019? Zero is the number. The biggest loss they had was in the Super Bowl. That was 11 points. But outside of that, in the, in the regular season and in the other playoff games or whatever, 
Nothing. They lost 17 to 20 to the Ravens. They lost 22 to 29 to the Falcons. They lost 24-27 to the Seahawks in overtime. They blew out teams left and right. They beat the Packers handily twice, 37-20 and 37-8. They also beat the Bengals 41 to 17, the Panthers 51 to 13. The Cardinals they beat by 10, 36-26. They beat Tampa 31 to 17. They beat the Browns 31 to 3. They beat the Vikings 27 to 10. That's 17 points. They beat the Rams 20 to 7. I mean, they, they they won by double digits in almost half their games for crying out loud. On top of having a a, a let's say comparable defense because it's eighth overall, which is what Tampa is. They also had the second best offense in football. And I'm not trying to say that Tampa's bad. They're very good. I didn't want to play Tampa. I don't like it. But but the idea that the last time the Packers and Tampa met have anything to do with this is silly. How about um, rushing. First of all, our leading rusher was Aaron Jones. He had 10 attempts for 15 yards, 1.5 yard average. Again, great, great run defense. So running backs having a rough day is not impossible. Aaron Jones had a tremendously bad day, and that was part of the problem. Aaron Jones was uniquely bad, and he was clearly our number one guy. A.J. Dillon had five carries. That was the second most. He had 31 yards, 6.2 average. Jamal Williams, four carries, 34 yards, 8.5 average. Those two had a great job, but they combined for nine carries. I think Matt LaFleur has done a better job of rotating the guys in and out. And if, if I guarantee you, if Aaron Jones is having a bad day and Jamal Williams is getting 8.5 yards per carry, Jamal's going to get a lot of carries in this game. They have so many things that they do. Remember, back a long time ago, Aaron Jones was by far our number one guy. There was no competition. At this point, it is just like a three-headed attack. Jamal's getting about as many carries as Jones does these days. And Dylan's starting to get worked in. I don't know if he's playing or not, but it kind of doesn't really even matter. They're just going to do what works. And as has been pointed out on Twitter and elsewhere, um, this is a team with a fast-flowing group of linebackers. Trying to get to the outside is not your best option. Smashing up the, Smashing them up the middle is probably your best option. And Dominican Sue is a good football player. It's not going to be necessarily easy, but trying to be faster than them, the point is, is not really going to work. As far as the receivers, Devontae Adams was the second highest graded receiver. He had a 67 overall grade. It was one of his worst games of the year. Now remember, this is him being graded on a route-to-route basis, right? How good of a job did he do getting away from people? PFF is looking at him saying, not very good. Also remember, this is his first time coming back from injury. He played week one. He went out in week two. He came back week six. He's a little bit rusty. So he had a 68. So his, in week one, his grade was an 84. Week six, it was a 68. After that, 93, 76, 92, 82, 76, 76, 83. He didn't have a game like that until week 14. Point is, kind of shook off the rust a bit. Not to say he can't have another day that's similar, but he had an 84 overall grade against the number one passing defense coverage defense, if you will, in the NFL. He rose to the occasion. So again, it's it's another variable that people aren't thinking of. Devontae's first game back from injury, and it was his worst game of however long, and he just blew up after that. Got back into his groove. And let's also not forget, Aaron Rodgers told us it wasn't until after week 11 that this team finally clicked. Remember, it was after the Indy game when he came out and I was like, dude, there's something different about this team. So we're going to go back to week six and talk about that? Come on. By the way, Darius Shepard was our highest-graded receiver. One target, one reception for 16 yards. Um, you had Robert Tunyon, who had a 60... Why doesn't this work? A 60 overall grade. He had four targets, three receptions for 25 yards. MVS, 60 receiving grade. Uh, five targets, three receptions, 32 yards. Aaron Jones, five targets, three yards, 
receptions, 26 yards. Malik Taylor, one target, zero receptions. Jamal, one target, zero receptions. Equinemius, two targets, zero receptions. Mercedes, two targets, zero receptions. Mercedes had a 30 overall grade. Equinemius had a 40. Jamal was a 52. Malik was a 52. Everybody was terrible. And again, this is different. This isn't Aaron Rodgers' bad passes. That's a separate grade. We already talked about that. He graded out horribly. This isn't the offensive line giving up pressures. That's the pressure grade. This is, okay, forget all that stuff. Your job is to beat the guy in front of you. How good of a job did you do? Mercedes was terrible. Equinemius was terrible. Jamal was terrible. Malik was terrible. Aaron Jones was terrible. Marquez was barely average. Robert Tunyon was barely average. Devontae had a terrible day for him. Darius Shepard was the only guy that had a decent grade. He went out and basically ran a half a route and caught a pass and there you go the wide receivers played like played like garbage then you come to the defense finally we come to the defense you know who the highest graded defender was in this game kingsley kiki with a 77 overall grade i've talked about the the breakdown of you know how many guys were were average good great all that stuff i don't have the sheet in front of me but Typically, you're going to have about five or six guys that grade out pretty well. Kingsley Kiki was the only one with a 70 grade on the entire defense, the only one. He had zero pressures in this game. He had a 52 grade in terms of, of pressure. He had a 74 run defense grade. That's the only reason he graded out as a 70. The guys that were close, Adrian Amos with a 69, Jair with a 69, Preston with a 68. It's not a terrible day for Jair, but it's sandwiched between an 88 and a 75. 27 yards that he gave up. Again, not a bad day, but that's the most he gave up since week one. And uh, when he gave up 66 yards, he didn't do that again until week uh, 11 against Indy, 55 yards. So I'm not even saying he had a bad day. It's just even for Jair now, we're looking at it like, yeah, just, just a half a step worse. On a day when the wide receivers are terrible, a handful of offensive linemen don't show up. Aaron Rodgers forgot how to play football. I don't know what's going on. On the flip side, 21 defenders. 11 of 21, we're, we're talking half, were 60 or better. Everybody else was 50s or lower. Josh Jackson was a 58, which is another thing to consider. There was no Kevin King. Josh Jackson had to fill in. Josh Jackson wasn't even that bad compared to half of these guys on the defense this day, but six targets, four receptions, 17 yards, and he gave up a touchdown. That's another thing that's very different. And I want to run through these names just to give you an idea of how different the defense looked. But let's look at the guys who were not playing well. Will Redmond who was playing safety, had a 56 overall grade, terrible against the run. We had Montravius, who was playing nose tackle. He was terrible, which has become commonplace. Randy Ramsey, he played 10 snaps, 52 overall grade, 21 tackling grade. Dean Lowry had a 52 overall grade. Kenny Clark with a 46. Remember, Kenny Clark is starting to play better. He's still not exactly where we'd like him to be, but let's take a look at Kenny Clark for a second, really quickly here, because again, we want to look at what the difference is. First of all, that was his second worst grade of the entire year. On a year in which Kenny's not playing great, second worst grade of the year. On top of that, this was also his first week back since week one. Same as Devonte, he played against Minnesota. He did not play weeks two, three, four, five was the bye. He came back week six. It was his first week. After this week, he played against Houston, had a 77 overall grade and four pressures. This week, 46 overall grade, no pressure. The only game in which he graded out worse was against Philadelphia, largely because of his inability to tackle in that game. Even in that game, he had two pressures. In fact, he has not had a game without a, pres uh, without a pressure since week 10. So to start the season, we're talking weeks 1 through 9, which is only five games, because again, he missed a ton of time. He only had one game with a pressure. No pressures against Minnesota. None against Tampa. None against Minnesota. None against San Francisco. 
He had one against Jacksonville, four against Indy, four against Chicago, two against Philly, four against Detroit, five against Carolina, three against Tennessee, one against Chicago, three against um, L.A. He has not had a single game without a pressure. So this is a different Kenny Clark. By the way, he hasn't had a bad day since Philadelphia. He hasn't been super elite, but again, he hasn't had a day in the 40s, 50s, none of that since week 13. So it's a different Kenny Clark. It might not be the best version of Kenny Clark, but trash, garbage Kenny Clark seems to be gone. At the very least, he's generating pressure every single week. The next worst player is Mr. Rashawn Gary. 43 overall grade. He had one pressure in this game. Well, gee, that seems like another guy that's kind of gotten slightly better, doesn't it? To start the season, here's his his grades, because this was commonplace, but even for him, it was a bad day. 64, 56, 55, 43, there's Tampa. By the way, Rashawn missed time. He didn't play week four, so he missed week four, came back after the bye week six, worst game he had. I think that might be part of the equation of after the, there were a lot of guys that were hurt, that were kept out, that had their first time back, so they had missed at least two weeks. They didn't play week four, they didn't play week five, they come back week six a little bit stiff. This was his own... Oh, no, I'm sorry. Take that back. So, again, bad grade, 64, 56, 55, then a 43, then a 65, 34, 55. Right, so he hasn't had really a good game. He's had a couple pressures mixed in here and there. He hasn't had a really good game all year, and it's week 9. Week 10, he gets a 79. Week 11, he gets an 80. So he's got two good games, and then he slumps again. 45, 58, 40, 57, 49. He's got, again, he's got a handful of good pressures mixed in. He had four pressure, uh, five pressures against Philadelphia but run defense was putrid. Since then, 90, 90, 81. Maybe he slumps, I don't know. But 17 of his 46 pressures have come in the last four weeks. 14 of his 46 have come in the last three weeks. So about a third of his pressures have come in the last three weeks. So we're probably not going to get the same Rashawn Gary. Um, And then we had another common characteristic of Packers early in the season was every single week, the worst players on the team were the linebackers. Oren Burks had a 30 overall grade. Chris Barnes had a 30 overall grade. Raven Green, a 29 overall grade. That was the defense. We didn't have a single linebacker that did anything slightly competent. Let's look at the guys that were average or better, just so we can run through some of these names and just remember Ty Summers with a 61 overall grade. Bad run defense grade, mediocre coverage grade. The one thing that saved him was he was a solid tackler. Zadarius Smith, Let's take a look at Z for a minute here. Now, he, as I said, has not been as good as he was last year. He's been kind of up and down. Take a wild guess whether this was an up or a down. Well, week four against Atlanta, he had a 90 overall grade, seven pressures. The week after against Houston, 72 overall grade, six pressures. Against Tampa, the game sandwiched in between, one pressure, no sack. Now, again, he's been super up and down. The game, so it's um, zero pressures, seven pressures, one pressure, six pressures, zero pressure. But similar to Kenny, it's kind of leveled out since week, let's see, San Francisco week nine, four, five, two, five, five, two, four, four, one, seven. He's still got a couple twos and ones mixed in, but it's pretty consistent four, five, and a couple sevens dashed in there. He did only have one against Chicago. That sucks. It's a bad offensive line. We needed him to do better, but again, they were getting the ball out a little quickly. This was probably his most dominant performance. It was seven pressure, which he's only done once this year. That was against Atlanta. But again, the fact that L.A. got the ball out of their hands as quickly as they did and as few attempts as he had, it's staggering. The last time he had seven pressures, he had 41 attempts. This time he only had 29. This was by far his best performance of the year as a pass rusher. His grade didn't really reflect that. His run defense wasn't great. His tackling was more, it was actually the worst he's had all year. But as a pass rusher, I would argue is his best game of the year. 
statistically, especially when you add in the context. So are we going to get the worst game from Zadarius and Rashawn and Kenny that we've seen basically since the last time we played Tampa? Is that the expectation? You got Tyler Lancaster was at 8, Chandon Sullivan was at 7, Kadar Holman was playing safety. He graded out his average. Darnell Savage with a 64. Now, um, I don't know for sure what version of Darnell we're going to get, but again, Darnell has been playing some really good football lately. He didn't flash all that much against L.A., and again, I think part of the problem is the way that they were playing. Not a lot of guys were getting super deep. One target, one reception for 28 yards. Didn't have any pass breakups, didn't have any interceptions, none of that kind of stuff, because again, they're not really attacking in the Darnell Savage zone. They're doing the dink and dunk stuff, and he's got to come up and tackle, and it just so happened to be a terrible tackling day for Darnell Savage. Um, He had one tackle, one assisted tackle, and one miss. That ratio is terrible. You can't have one tackle and one missed tackle. That's not going to fly. But again, it's, it's, it's up to you. You can play dink and dunk, and then you take Darnell out of the equation and try to work your way all the way down the field, or you try to attack Darnell Savage and see if we can reinvigorate uh, Week 16 against Tennessee, Week 15 against Carolina, etc., etc., etc. Basically, Week 9 through Week 16 is when he just dominated. Chicago and L.A., again, the little dink and dunk master. So if, if your goal is to take uh, Amos and Savage out of the equation, fine. Do what Chicago and L.A. did. Maybe you'll have better results. I'm sure it'll go just swimmingly. I'm sure you won't get absolutely annihilated the way the Packers annihilated those two teams. I'm sure it'll be fine. Go ahead and do that. Then you had Preston, who was the fourth best guy, two pressures. That's pretty commonplace for him. If he if he plays as well as he did against Tampa, fine. Which, massive kudos, because when everybody else doesn't show up, if you're having like an average game for yourself on that day, great. But again, point is, nobody showed up. Nobody. Kingsley Kiki showed up. That's it. Preston had an average day. Darnell had a pretty average day. One target, one reception for six yards. I'll take that. Nobody showed up. That's the point. And it it happens. And I wish it didn't. I wish it never happened. But the idea that Green Bay is going to have a similar mindset as they did in week six. A bunch of guys coming off injury, feeling themselves way too much. They're 4-0. and They can't be stopped. The defense, by the way, has not turned the corner. They had a really bad defense, one of the worst defenses in football at that point. But a white-hot offense. The offense was feeling itself way too much. The defense couldn't do anything. They were still trying to feel their way around. They had to go, again, a bunch of guys missed time. They had a bye week, which they don't handle bye weeks very well. I don't know if Matt LaFleur needs to do something or what. Then they have to go on the road, down to Florida, almost 90 degrees, and it didn't go well. I would be a little bit surprised, let's just say, if the Packers on this stage, as well as the offense and the defense have been playing in Lambeau, in the freezing cold, in their environment, with a home crowd cheering. Remember, that was another thing in San Francisco. They had to go to the West Coast on the road to San Francisco. A better team, not the home crowd. We know how Zadarius is when the crowd starts cheering. He's like the Incredible Hulk, man. It just Something just clicks in his brain and he freaks out. Or like a werewolf in the moon and whatever. You pick your own thing. But there's just really no question about it. This is a different animal. Now, this doesn't mean Packers win necessarily. This just kind of goes to erase what happened last time as nonsense. Now we start from scratch. And rather than looking in the past like everybody else wants to do, let's look to the future. Let's look to the present. How about that? We'll we'll move on to the present and then we'll try to predict the future after that. But the question isn't what happened week six. What happened on the Packers' worst day of the season when, when everybody played terribly? The question is, what is happening right now? And what's happening, honestly, if I can quickly summarize it and we'll do a better job explaining tomorrow, 
is that you have two very, very good football teams in the Packers and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers that have basically just been annihilating everything in their path that are going to square off in Lambeau Field. That's kind of cool, but we'll explore that a little further tomorrow. I've got to get going. You folks have yourselves a fantastic Tuesday. Have a good one, and bye-bye.